Well, uh, providentially, my uh, father is here this morning. I think some of you had a chance to meet him, perhaps during the greeting time. And as uh, many of you might know, my father's life is a testimony to God's amazing grace. As a young man, he lived a very reckless life. In his own words, these are his words, uh, he was a juvenile delinquent of the most excellent kind. Um, in fact, there were several occasions where he almost lost his life due to his folly and sin. Yet to the praise of God's great grace, uh, shortly before I was born, my mom invited him to a conference gosh, uh, where my dad heard the gospel and put his trust in Christ. And when he did, radical transformation took place. He went from being a very self-centered, destructive man to a man who loves God and righteousness. And for several decades now, um, he's faithfully served at his church. And he's the godliest man I know. Well, my father's job requires him to travel quite a bit. And over the past several years, he said to frequently travel to China. Well, uh, something recently happened to him that is quite interesting uh, that he has given me permission to share with you. Uh, because my dad is such a frequent flyer, he is eligible to take part in a program called Global Entry. Global Entry is a program where you can bypass all the customs and immigration red tape when you re-enter the United States. And to be accepted in the Global Entry Program, all my dad had to do was go to a customs office and be interviewed by a federal agent, which he did. Well, the interview was going great. Things were almost over. When the officer said, hey, John, there's just one more thing I need to do. And the officer needed to get my dad's fingerprint. Yet once the officer scanned my dad's fingerprint, the officer got this perplexed look on his face. You see, when my dad's fingerprint was scanned, all his past records came up on the officer's computer screen, which my dad could not see. And immediately, the officer had this confused expression on his face. And looking at the computer screen, he said, said to my dad, he's like, John, have you ever been arrested? He's like, well, I mean, when I was a young teenager, I did a, a bunch of foolish things. So, so maybe, maybe a couple times, but that was like 50 years ago. And then the officer asked, is there anything else you would have done that would show up on your record? Anything else? Then the officer began to ask leading questions without telling him what he's seen on the screen. In fact, the officer even identified the specific city, yet my dad couldn't remember. You see, during my father's reckless years, there was an incident where he was arrested and placed in jail. He actually stayed the night 
in jail. But he couldn't remember it. He had forgotten that he was once handcuffed and placed behind bars. And because of that one incident over 50 years ago, my father was denied entry into the Global Entry Program. You don't, you don't have to say it out loud, but have you ever forgotten a rather significant moment in your life? That is, someone had to remind you of something you once did or experienced? As my father's story illustrates, failing to remember your past can often have detrimental consequences in the present. This is to say, we need to remember who we once were. This morning, we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're actually going to take several weeks in these 10 verses because they're so rich. And as we're about to see, the Apostle Paul has a concern in this text. He actually has a burden. And you know what that burden is? It's that you, Christian, would remember your past. Specifically, Paul's burden in the opening verses of Ephesians 2 is that unlike my father, we would remember our former chains. That is, we would remember who we were apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know why Paul wants us to remember this? He wants us to remember this because to do otherwise, as we're going to see as we work our way through the book of Ephesians, because to do otherwise would be detrimental to our Christian faith presently. Faith, as we're about to see, remembering our former bondage apart from Christ is not only the key for us to understanding the immeasurable power God demonstrated to save us, but as Paul makes clear in verses 11 through 22, knowing who we once were apart from Christ is essential to have unity within the church. Indeed, knowing what God has saved us from is truly the fountain from which humility can spring in the believer's life. Knowing our former helpless state ought to make us humble. So here's my aim for our time this morning. I'm going to lay all my cards out on the table. My goal is to show you clearly Christian from Scripture your former bondage in slavery as an unbeliever. This is to say, in regards to your Christian life, I don't want you to have the same experience as my father, forgetful of your former chains. So like the ghost of Christmas past with Ebenezer Scrooge, I want to take you on a tour of your former life apart from Jesus. But... 
If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, please know that this will not be a tour of your past, but this is going to be a portrait of your present. Friend, what we're about to see is your condition apart from faith in Jesus Christ. So, like the ghost of Christmas past with Scrooge, let's begin. If you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. That's page 600, or I'm sorry, 976 in that paperback Bible. And in these opening three verses of Ephesians 2, Paul directs our attention, I'm going to suggest, to three realities that are true of every person apart from Jesus Christ. Okay? And here's the first that we're going to observe. Apart from Christ, you were dead spiritually. Notice how Paul makes this clear in verse 1. I'm going to actually read just the first three verses, following your copy of God's Word. So, so uh, by way of context, Paul begins chapter 1 with, this glorious explanation of how our triune God has worked to save us. Then he goes into this prayer for the saints that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And then last week, so thankful, Steve did a wonderful job showing us the historical reality to this prayer from Acts chapter 2. Well, now you could say Paul's prayer kind of continues on. And notice what he says here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. First, apart from Christ, Paul teaches you were dead spiritually. Uh, Jeremy Betham was a philosopher and is considered the father of Unitarian. Of something. <laughs> Utilitarianism. Thank you. The, my contacts are having me a hard time. Anyway, what you need to know is this. He lived from 1748 to 1832. And when he died in 1832, he gave orders that his entire estate, which was a ginormous fortune, that fortune, those monies, would be given to the University College Hospital in London. Huge fortune, huge estate, given to him. But there was one condition, and that was, get this, Bentham was to be present at every board meeting. So to this day, the remains of Jeremy Betham are wheeled into the boardroom every month and placed at the head of the table. 
His skeleton is dressed in 17th century garb. And at the beginning of every meeting, the chairman says, and this has been recorded in the minutes, this, and I quote, Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present, but not voting. <laughs> Friend, apart from Christ, that's us. Though we might be physically present, actually we are spiritually dead. And you know what? Dead people are notoriously bad initiators. Yet unlike Bentham, who sat still in a wheelchair, notice what Paul says in this text. He says we are actually active. And what is it we are doing? Notice, we are walking in our sins and transgressions. Did you see it there? This is the state not only of the most depraved in our society, but of all who have not trusted Christ as Savior. Prior to your conversion, every human since Adam, they live in active rebellion against God, transgressing His commands and sinning against Him. Faith, this was you before you put your faith in Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning, this is your current condition. You are dead spiritually, walking in sin. The other day I was, I was speaking to someone at the gym, and this lady told me, she's not a Christian. She says, I am not a Christian, but she was very adamant. She said, but I am a very spiritual person. In fact, she said she feels the most connected to God when she goes for walks in the forest. Her words to me were this. She says, when I'm in the woods, when I'm in the forest, she says, I feel the most spiritually alive. Not according to this passage. Apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead. Walking in sin. Which leads to the second reality Paul wants us to know, and that is apart from Christ, you were disobedient. Look again. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sense of what? Disobedience. Please note that apart from Christ, we are not neutral towards God. No, we are disobedient. And what Paul does in verses 2 through 3 is describe the two primary ways in which we are disobedient. The first is that we follow our sinful desires. That is, we could say it this way, sin is your master. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Please note, the picture here is not one of freedom, but it's one of enslavement. 
I'm, we are enslaved to sin. Sin is our master. Uh, dur- <laughs> during my teen years, my family, we, we had a dog named Honey. And whenever we came home, Honey was so excited to see us. It didn't matter where we left Honey. Be it at home, in a kennel, locked up in the backyard. No matter, no matter where we put the dog, no matter where we put Honey, whenever we came back, she was super excited to see us. In fact, this is one of the reasons why people love dogs so much, don't they? People enjoy dogs because of their pure love and devotion to their owner. Dogs love their master. Well, apart from our relationship with Christ, that's what our relationship is like with sin. Sin was our master. However, in our natural condition, we don't treat sin like an evil master we are trying to escape. It's not like we're Cinderella and sin is the wicked stepmother we long to get away from. No. That is not the biblical picture. No, our disposition to sin is like that of a dog and its master. We love it. This is why you'll find many people happy in their sin. Sin is their master, and they obey it and enjoy it. As I mentioned, this is what Paul is getting at when he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Right? The picture is one of enslavement, not freedom. And, and we see this taught throughout the pages of the New Testament. Consider what Paul writes in Romans 6. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once what? Say it like you mean it. Slaves of sin have become obedient from the hearts to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And what you need to understand is that this enslavement to sin, it goes down deep to the core of our affections. Consider what Jesus says in John 3. Jesus says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Tell me, who is Jesus referring to when he speaks of light? Himself, yeah. Almost always the answer is going to be Jesus, right? It's okay. Who, he's speaking to himself. Yet notice what he says about those who aren't believers. What do they love? Darkness. They love sin. They love evil. And this is really significant. Please hear me. Jesus is saying your lost friend, your lost relative, your lost child, he's saying their hearts are hardwired to love sin more than Christ. As John Piper has written, he says this, Hate and love are not choices. They are profound preferences of the palate of the soul. And he's absolutely right. The unbeliever does not love God. And as we're going to see in a moment, he cannot love God. 
And faith, this was true of you prior to your, to your conversion to Jesus. You loved the darkness and hated the light. But as we take a moment to consider, the, the New Testament elaborates even more and teaches that since sin is our master, we also love the glory of man more than God. Consider what Jesus says in John 5. He says this, he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is saying, in this desire where sin is our master, we do not even seek the glory of God because we love the glory of man. I'm reminded of a, of a story that R.C. Sproul once told. He, he tells of the time when he knew a very brilliant young man. They became friends while, while in seminary. However, during his time in seminary, Sproul's friend abandoned the Christian faith. He doubted the trustworthiness of the Bible and the historical reliability of the resurrection. So what Sproul did was he'd meet with this guy every week and spend hours addressing and answering all the doubts this guy had. And to the satisfaction of this man, Sproul resolved every one of this guy's questions and doubts. But you know what? that guy still chose not to believe. And Sproul was confused. He, he, he laid out all the facts. He laid out all the information right in front of him. But he wouldn't put his faith in Christ. He still refused not to believe. Why, why did he still refuse to believe? Well, I want to suggest Jesus answers the question in the verses I just read. Faith the reason why people do not trust in Jesus is never for a lack of evidence. No, they refuse to believe because they love the glory of man more than the glory of God. And this is another effect of sin being your master. Notice Jesus' question, the last line there, Jesus' question has no answer in the text because the question is really a statement. This is what Jesus is saying. He's like, you can't believe while you're still enslaved to the craving to receive glory from men. This is why you cannot put your believe and receive me. The same point is made later in the Gospel of John. Referring to the Pharisees, John, Jesus says this in John 12, 43. He says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And faith, this was once you. Prior to God saving you, you lived for yourself. You lived for the praise and glory of man, not God. And if we're to take Jesus' words seriously, then we ought to believe that the praise of man keeps people from seeking the glory of God in Jesus Christ. but it gets worse. 
Because sin is your master, Scripture also teaches that you cannot understand the gospel. Notice how Paul makes this abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 2.12. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Cannot understand the gospel. You are unable This is why you'll hear people give their testimony in church and sometimes they'll say things like this. They'll say, and maybe this is your story, they'll say, I grew up in church for 32 years, but in my 32 years at church, I never heard the gospel. It wasn't until I turned 32 that I finally heard the gospel. Uh, No. Those 32 years that you were in church, the gospel was proclaimed You just did not have spiritual ears to hear it. You were deaf. You were exactly what Paul says right here. The Spirit of God did not quicken your soul so that you could hear the gospel and respond in faith and repentance. The Bible also teaches, because of this enslavement to sin, that you hate God cannot please God, nor submit to God. Look at what Paul writes in Romans. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So underneath the thin veneer of the smiles and pleasantries of an unbeliever, there is a soul friend that hates God. Your child who is not a believer hates God. He cannot please God. He or she cannot submit to God's law. And neither can your unbelieving friends and family members They are hostile to God. And just let the cannots of this text sink in. And this is the type of bondage. These are the chains that every person has apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is who you once were, Christian. You were completely unable to do anything for the condition of your soul. Sin was your master. But second, outside of Christ, you were also ruled by Satan. Did you see that there in Ephesians 2 2? Notice what Paul writes. He says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You know who the prince of the power of the air is? Guess who that is? Satan. Yeah, it's not Jesus. (laughs) Satan. This is who you follow, Paul writes. Indeed, as the rest of the New Testament makes clear, apart from Christ, you are, please hear me, you're actually a child of the devil. Did you know this? It's not simply that you follow Satan. No, we would say this way, Satan is also your father. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 3.10. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. 
He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of what? The devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Apart from Christ, Christian, as Paul is spelling out here in Ephesians 2, apart from Christ, sin is your master, you're enslaved to it, and Satan is your father. You are ruled, you follow the prince of the air. Uh, Several years ago now, my family, we were out having dinner with another family, and uh, like many restaurants these days, TVs were everywhere. It's actually, it's kind of hard to find a restaurant where there's not a TV on. And this was actually in March. So March Madness was on, so college basketball was all on all the TV screens. Well, we're, we're, we're enjoying dinner, and my kids, that several years ago, they were much, much younger, and they're watching the TV when all of a sudden there came on all the TVs a commercial for a very disturbing and vile and unwholesome movie. And immediately I said to my kids, you know, kids, kids, look down, look down. In fact, I, I might have even put my hand over Noah's face, right? Why? Because as their father, I did not want them to see this evil thing, right? Well, as 1 John 3.10 tells us, outside of saving faith of Jesus Christ, Satan is our father. Jesus says the same thing himself in John 8, 44. We are not born into this world as children of God, but children of Satan. And as Paul articulates here in Ephesians 2, 2, we are ruled by him. And please hear me. And just like me with my kids, there is something Satan doesn't want us to see. However, it's not something bad. No, it's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's describing almost the exact same scenario like me and my kids there in that restaurant. He says, in their case, the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So so are you you getting the picture here? It's not only that in your natural state, sin is your master and you're unable to understand the gospel and that you hate God and you cannot please God as we looked at earlier. But as this verse states, Satan is keeping you He's blinding you from seeing the light of the gospel. He's like me with Noah and my kids, covering our eyes so we cannot see. Since Think of it like this. Since sin is our master, we are like a deaf man who cannot hear the gospel. And because Satan is our father, we also have a blindfold covering our eyes to keep us from seeing it. Now let's just consider for a moment the enormous implications of what this means. When you're praying for the salvation of a friend or a lost family member, remember these things, faith. Remember they are in bondage and enslavement and they don't even realize it. 
And it takes the supernatural work of God's Spirit in their lives for them to see their sin and then trust their Savior. They cannot come to faith without God's divine power in their lives. And Christian, neither could you until God in His sovereign grace sets you free and gave you the gift of faith and repentance. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, it's solely because of God's initiating work in saving you. And you know what this reality should do for the Christian? Well, I mean, this reality should do a bunch of things, knowing that it's God who has to be at work, but it should do two things for you, Christian, in regards to evangelism. And that's, number one, it should give you both comfort and relief. Listen to me, uh, Faith Community Church, please. There is nothing you can do to save a person. You cannot break a person free from their spiritual bondage. You can't make them spiritually alive. You can't take the blindfolds off their eyes. Only God can do that. And you know what else? Take comfort in this. There's nothing you can do to condemn a person to hell. You cannot push a lost, sin-enslaved child of the devil further away from the Lord. Do you see this? I mean, look at where they're at already. They are a slave to sin. They are a child of the devil. Christian, please do not ever think that by your sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that by you sharing the gospel, that you are going to push them away from God. Really? How could they be any farther away from God than they are right now? Just look at where they're already at. Now, that person might want to push themselves away from you after you share the gospel with them. And honestly, we should expect that at times. And if we're really honest, maybe that's our greatest fear or we don't share the gospel. We're afraid that they'll reject us. But please hear me, if God is going to save people, it's going to be purely by His sovereign grace and the work of the Spirit in that person's life. So this is why we pray that God in His kindness would save sinners and then we faithfully and obediently proclaim the gospel. Do we know every person God will save? No. But we do know that we're called to faithfully share the gospel to each and every person. And, and if I could just simply add, and we're to do so not with a fatalistic attitude, but with expectancy. Faith, we serve the God of the resurrection, amen? We serve the one true and mighty God. We serve the God who can do the impossible. So we fervently pray for our lost friends and family members. And some of you might be those friends and family members right here today. People are praying for you right now. 
that God would remove the blinders from your eyes. We pray for their salvation, and then we faithfully and obediently share the good news of Jesus. But then finally, and perhaps worst of all, apart from Christ, you were doomed. Look again at verse 3. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Our, our fundamental problem, many times, is not so much that we think we're sinners, we just don't think our sin deserves judgment. But it does. Notice the disobedient of verse 2 are now the children destined for wrath in verse 3. Our disobedience earns us something, and that is eternal judgment from God in hell. So let's just take a moment and let's look at this picture. What a bleak, wretched state this is. Dead spiritually, disobedient, doomed for destruction. Christian, this is who you once were. You were fast bound by sin in nature's night. Apart from Christ, you were spiritually dead, disobedient. Sin was your master. Satan was your father. And you were doomed for eternal judgment in hell. You were a wretched, utterly helpless soul. Can you feel the chains? That's my prayer. Can you remember it, John? Do you remember how, how you once were? You had no hope. None. This is who you once were. And now consider what Paul writes next. Look with me in verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and we all say, Amen. Praise Him. Christian, do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, God made you alive spiritually. God did it. And praise Him for that. And I want to argue that this is the thesis statement the main point of Paul's argument in verses 1 through 10. Christian, out of the riches of God's mercy and great love, 
He looked down upon your helpless, dead, disobedient, doomed state and made you alive together with Christ. And you know why God did that? Because there's no way you could do it yourself. I mean, how could you in light of what we just read? Christian, God and God alone has made you spiritually alive for you, made you spiritually alive in Christ. So you know what that means for you today? Today, Christian, it means that Jesus freed you from your enslavement to sin. No longer is sin your master. You know what that means for you, Christian? You do not have to sin. Jesus freed you from that enslavement. When your spouse is mean towards you, you do not have to sin in return. When your friend stabs you behind your back, you don't have to respond to sin. He freed you from being enslaved to sin. Not only that, Jesus also freed you from your love of the darkness so that you can now love the light. He has changed your affections, changed them. So now they're rightly ordered affections towards God. Praise the Lord for this. He's also freed you from your love for the glory of man so now you can love the glories of God. He's freed you from your inability to understand the gospel. So now you can comprehend the things of God. He has freed you from your hatred of God. So now you can please and submit to Him. And furthermore, as 1 John 3, 8 says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Amen? So not only can you hear and see the gospel, but get this. You can have God as your Father, not Satan. Praise Him. And then lastly... Jesus had freed you, has freed you from the curse and judgment of the law. As Galatians 4, 5 states, Jesus was born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law. No condemnation now, I dread. And how has Jesus freed you? He's freed you through suffering Jesus lived a life marked by suffering. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows, yet he never sinned. Instead, he perfectly kept God's law. He lived the perfect life you and I have failed to live. And that in complete submission to God the Father, Jesus willingly went to the cross to die in your place as a substitute. He bore the full judgment you deserve for your sin as a lawbreaker. And Christ did this so through faith in Him you are spared from God's judgment, you're adopted as His son or daughter, and you have the hope of eternal life. Christian, praise Him. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, trust in Him. Tomorrow is not promised, friend. You know, because of a past transgression, over 50 years ago, my father was denied global entry. Friend, because of your sins and transgressions, you're denied not global entry, but something more important, and that's heavenly entry. Yet praise be to God 
Because of his great mercy and love, in Jesus Christ, all our sins are forgiven. We've been adopted into God's family, and now we have heavenly entry. Amen? Let us praise him and live lives that please him. Let's pray.